Welcome to Stories from the First Watch. This is both a solo role-playing game and an experiment in audio storytelling. The story and the character's actions will unfold upon the roll of the dice. Once the game starts, nothing is predetermined. The dice are in control. Last time on Stories from the First Watch. We return to the party who are recovering after besting the giant bombardier beetles in the deep dark tunnels. We briefly cut to the goblin band who have tracked the party almost since the beginning of the tale. They re-enter Caramond, the scent of the party hot in their nostrils. After resting and healing, the companions find themselves in an old chapel in which stands an altar fashioned into the shape of a dwarven god and a statue that represents the spirits of the mountains. Most significantly, the party find a makeshift cell in which is held 11 of the 16 villagers who had been abducted from Hollow Hill. Their spokesman tells the party members that they had been badly treated by the bandits, fed slops and beaten regularly, and that occasionally a tall, thin, bony-looking man would visit them, running his hands over individuals and then selecting them for some unknown purpose, whereupon they were spirited away. The villager tells the party this man was referred to as Master Lucan, corroborating the name given to them by the dying bandit guard, Morton. Just as they are about to release the prisoners, the party are startled by a grinding noise, which turns out to be a living statue an automated construct that has been enchanted to attack intruders after a certain number of minutes have passed, and combat is about to ensue. Before it does, however, the action cuts back to the goblin band, who have finally found the party, and prepare for their attack. Let's return to the party now, who are in the process of entering combat. In the last episode, we established that the living statue had taken the party by surprise and thus got an unopposed attack on them. The living statue is tough, with 20 hit points. It is imbued with unholy magic that creates a mighty heat within its core, which it can expel in the form of molten rock through its fingertips as an unlucky target. I'm going to roll a d6 to determine which of the party members it will attack first. Killia, is this going to be the end of the young rogue? The statue fires lava in her direction, attacking with a 9 and a 12. Both streams of rock miss their target as Kilia acrobatically dives out of the way, leaving steaming scorch marks on the chapel wall. Now I'll roll for initiative as we enter round 1. Longo goes first. The militiaman is badly wounded and feels that his short sword is unlikely to do too much damage to the statue, but he has the idea to attack it with one of the flaming braziers. He ducks in behind the creature and tries to rip the brazier off the wall. I roll a strength test for him to see if he succeeds. Two, he doesn't. He struggles heroically, but the brazier isn't budging. Mara is next. As usual, she casts shield over herself and retreats to a safe distance, 
looking to find another way to hurt the creature. Elmander charges in with his sword and takes a mighty swipe at the statue. He rolls a 10 which misses. His sword judders horribly against the stone being and narrowly avoids shattering. Kilia, seeing Elmander's charge, decides to try a sneak attack on the statue. I'll roll to see if she successfully moves silently. If so, she'll get double damage on any hit she makes. She has a 30% chance of succeeding. Rolling a d100. 39. No, the statue senses her coming, so she just has the chance to make a regular attack. With a 9, that's a miss. The thing's attack on her has unnerved her. Now the statue has another chance to hit back. Rolling to see who it attacks. Oh no, that's Longo. He only has two hit points left, and the statue has two attacks at d12, meaning at the very least it will score two points of damage. If the thing succeeds in hitting Longo, the man from Hollow Hill will be no more. His very life depends on this dice roll. As Longo is behind the creature, I will give him a small lifeline. If he can pass a dexterity check, I will say he just manages to dodge the vengeful creature. Here goes. Rolling for the statue. A 16. It has potentially hit Longo. If he fails this dexterity test, he is dead. Longo has a dexterity of 13, which gives him a plus one to his roll. He needs to get 15 or more on a d20. Oh well. This is it. Let's roll. I rolled a two. The living statue's streams of lava slam into Longo's chest, pushing him against the wall and gouging a great fiery hole in his torso. He arches in agony and screams until his voice is suddenly cut off forever and his shattered body slumps to the floor, smoke rising from his mouth. Longo is dead. Maccus, seeing this, is struck by crazed grief. In a rage at the death of his friend, he yells a war cry and sprints at the statue of his spear. He rolls a 16, which hits 7 damage. The spear tip somehow finds a fracture in the statue's structure and drives deeply in, causing a large chunk of stone to tumble down from its midriff. That was a heavy, heavy round. Will the remaining party members survive the next few? Round 2. Kilia takes advantage of the statue's distraction. 16. She hits it for 6 damage. A strong blow that fractures part of its back, the stone crumbling to the floor. Mara desperately looks around for something to attack it with. She spots a large lump of masonry nearby. Picking it up, she summons the strength to throw it at the statue. I will roll a dexterity check for her to see if she hits it. 5. No, that misses and crashes to the floor in front of it. The statue turns to fend off the attack from Kilia. 4. An 8. She is again ready for the attacks and dodges the streams of lava that shoots out, scorching the chapel's wall. Maccus, still crazed by grief, charges in again with his spear. 9. 
this time emotion gets the better of him, and the spear ricochets off the creature's stony hide. Na'vi attacks with his hammer. 9. Unfortunately, the part of the creature he hits is strongly mortared and is not substantially damaged. Elmanda changes tack and smites down on the creature's shoulder with the pommel of his sword. 19. His tactic works and he partially severs the statue's arm for 3 damage. Despite the loss of Longo, round 2 has gone much better for the party. They have inflicted substantial damage on the living statue without taking any in return, but the statue still has the power to severely wound or kill the party members with ease, so everything is still in the balance. Round 3 Maccus, still in a rage, strikes first, but again his anger causes him to miss with a 4. Mara, out of options, decides to use her new spell, Detect Magic, to see if there's anything around that may help the party. First of all, I'm going to check if there is. I'll say, as this is a former chapel, there's a chance of some magical item within the room. Rolling a d100 for a 35% chance. 12. Okay, there is. Rolling on the basic fantasy treasure table. It's a scimitar, a wicked curved blade sword. Mara sees it as a glowing shape, placed atop the altar. She moves towards it but cannot retrieve it this turn. The statue is starting to crumble, and its attacks are becoming clumsy. It lashes out again at Kilia. Nat 1. I rule that this is a total failure for the attack, as its arm comes completely loose from its body and crashes to the floor. It still has one attack at Kilia. 11, which also misses. Na'vi crashes into it with his warhammer again. A 16 hits for just one point of damage. Next, Elmanda wildly slices his longsword into the statue. 18 for 4 damage. That's enough to destroy the statue, which shatters into a dozen pieces and collapses to the floor. The faint magical glow surrounding it fades. The combat is over. Elmanda stepped back from the rubble of the no longer living statue. Its sightless eyes gazed up at him from the floor, its severed head partially buried in the shattered remains of the body. Numbly, the fighter stared at his sword. The blade had been bent completely out of shape by its final strike on the magical construct. It looked almost comical. But the real reason that he focused so intently on it was that it meant he didn't have to look at Longo. He could ignore Max's agonised cries for his friend. The others ran to the fallen militiamen, but it was obvious there was nothing anyone could do. The boy had a huge, smouldering hole in his chest, and his face had been eaten away by molten rock. Mara hugged the sobbing Maccus tightly, whilst Kilia prudently covered the body with her travelling cloak, and Na'vi knelt solemnly, making the holy symbol of Gazam with his hands, and praying softly under his breath. Marcus, Marcus, listen to me, Mara whispered. The young man looked up, red-eyed. Longo is gone, but he was a hero. He distracted this creature, gave us enough time to regroup and to finish it. We are all alive because of him. These people, she gestured at the prisoners, 
They saw what he did. When we take them back to Hollow Hill, he'll be made a legend. Makos nodded, still desperately upset, but calmer now. Kilia came to console him, and Mara walked to Armanda. She wordlessly pointed to the altar, where he noticed the curved scimitar. When Navi had finished his prayer, Armanda came over to him, holding the scimitar. Master Dwarf, he said. Is this weapon some kind of dwarvish relic? Navi looked carefully at the blade, and frowned. It is not one I have seen before, he said. I cannot say that to be so. Elmanda nodded. Well, if you have no objection, I will take it. Mine has perished taking down this stony bastard. He then walked over to Maccus, put his arm round the boy's shoulder, and whispered to him. Kilia suddenly remembered the prisoners. They had cowered away at the emergence of the statue, but now they returned to the front of their cell expectantly. She hurried over to the lock, running her fingers around it. It seemed a simple job, nothing that would take her too long. She froze, as from the chapel entrance came a chorus of shrill, vicious cries. And as the companions turned in surprise, they were confronted by a triumphant host of goblins. Behind the scenes. Before we find out what happens next, I'd like to turn my attention to the first major antagonist of stories from the First Watch. Master Lucan is the mastermind behind this unholy alliance of cultists and goblins. But who is he exactly? Firstly, I will roll up his stat. I'm going to say he is a 4th level character, to make him fairly formidable for the characters. But a 4th level... what? The basic fantasy rules don't have Necromancer as a character class, but I'm envisaging this class as a combination of Cleric and Magic user. Of course, as a Necromancer, Lucan will have the opposite motivation of most Clerics, which is to turn undead and to purify the unholy. Therefore, I'll refer to him as a Dark Cleric. If he survives to 5th level, which is very up in the air at the moment, I'll introduce elements of the Magic user class too. First things first, let's roll up his stats. Strength, 10. Dexterity, 7. Years of studying unholy tomes have obviously left his body hunched and stiff. Intelligence, 12. Wisdom, 14. Constitution, 11. Charisma, 10. So, decent stats. What about hit points? As a 4th level cleric, he has 4d6 hit points. That's 15. I'll say he wears leather armour for an armour class of 13, and he wields a wicked looking mace. Now, he'll get 2 first level and 1 second level prayers. Perusing the list, I'm going to give him cure like wounds, but as the opposite of a regular cleric, this prayer will be caused like wounds, doing 1d4 hit points of damage to anyone he touches. He will also have cause fear, 
which causes anyone affected to roll a saving throw versus spells, or flee for two rounds of combat. And also, hold person, which paralyzes any living humanoid creature if they fail their saving throw. All in all, if he faces the party, which is looking likely, he will prove a formidable foe. Let's see how he came to be in the abandoned fort of Caramund. Fifteen years ago. The quiet village of Alderbrook lies in the northeast of the provinces, about two days from Forland. It nestles in a steep, narrow valley amidst towering oak and alder trees and meandering streams. It is a poor community whose main industries are mining for lead in the sparse seams of the valley, and some villagers also keep small flocks of goats and sheep on the scrubby hillsides. One goat herd, a humorous ascetic man, had a son born of his late wife. The boy's name was Lucan, and he spent most of his time helping his father maintain his flock, feeding, milking, and occasionally slaughtering the hardy animals. He was a dreamer, who often got into trouble with his father, who beat him angrily after any perceived transgression. One day, after trying to track down a goat that had gone missing, Lucan stumbled across a small shack, high in the valley, hidden from view by boulders and brambles. Inside was an enigmatic, wild-looking man, who, initially furious at being discovered, gradually took the boy under his wing. The man, known as Taldor, was a hedge wizard, a self-taught magic user who specialised in the magic of the natural world, creating potions and cantrips, and experimenting on wild animals. He imparted his knowledge upon Lucan, showing him how to take control of the minds of birds and shrews, and how to reanimate dead flies and beetles to do his bidding. Lucan studied diligently, getting away to the hut as often as he could, absorbing every lesson with fervour and dedication. But as his knowledge grew, so did his ambition. Lucan hungered for power beyond the limitations of village life. In secret, he gradually delved into forbidden lore and practised dark rituals, heedless of the warnings his mentor imparted. One fateful night, after a couple of years of study, in the throes of a reckless incantation, Lucan inadvertently summoned a malevolent entity from the depths of the Neverworlds. This minor demon, drawn by the young apprentice's dark desires, seized upon his vulnerability and ensnared his soul in its unholy grip. Taldor intervened just in time, banishing the demon back to its infernal domain, but the damage had been done. Lucan emerged from the ordeal physically scarred and mentally fractured, haunted by the whispers of the demon that lingered within his mind like a festering wound. Disgraced and cast out by his mentor for his flagrant disregard of his warnings, Lucan wandered the wilderness, a solitary figure consumed by madness and remorse. He sought solace in the study of necromancy, delving deeper into the forbidden arts than ever before. His experiments on dead animals and creatures became increasingly grotesque as he descended further into the abyss of his own despair. Years passed, and Lucan's name became a whispered legend among the superstitious folk of the lands. 
tales of a mad hermit who communed with the dead and controlled the minds of animals spread like wildfire. It was during his wanderings that Lucan, pallid and emaciated, came across the riverport city of Baladern. After weeks exploring its seedy underbelly, he stumbled across a representative of the cohort of Paha, an underground death cult rumoured to possess knowledge of ancient and forbidden magics. Drawn by the promise of power and acceptance, Lucan offered his services to the cult, sharing his dark knowledge in exchange for sanctuary among their ranks. Now he began to add religious zeal to his knowledge of magic, and achieved the title of Dark Cleric. But the cohort had begun to reach too far, and rumours of their foul deeds reached the ears of the city's lords. The elite guards of the city watch, alerted by disgruntled former members of the cult, engaged its underground stronghold in a bloody siege. With nowhere else to turn, Lucan fled alongside the remnants of the cult. One of its senior members, a foreigner known only as the Lady, took refuge in the town of Forland and set up an ostensibly respectable business running a livery stable. Lucan, one of her favoured lieutenants, maintained contact with her and promised to continue his work on her behalf. He wandered the wilderness north of Forland, travelling from frontier town to frontier town, until he heard rumours of an abandoned dwarven ruin in the heights around the village of Hollow Hill. Here he made his nest, and it was here, amongst the crumbling stone and forgotten chambers, that Lucan found a semblance of purpose once more. With the aid of Giona, a loyal cult follower, Lucan began to rebuild his power, using the ancient halls as a base of operations for his twisted experiments and dark rituals. Like moths to a flame, he drew back a number of cultists to his bidding over the next few years. But there were still few in number, and he decided to reach out to a tribe of goblins who roamed the borders of the provinces, occasionally raiding settlements. In return for gold and the occasional captive to eat and torture, the goblins agreed to act as reavers for the cohort. Initially, they captured the occasional lone traveller or remote hermit, but in recent times, Lucan felt confident enough to order them to raid the nearby villages. Hollow Hill particularly came under attack, which attracted the attention of the Greyfellows in Forland, who initially thought that a rival criminal gang had arisen to challenge them. Lucan felt his power growing, and his dark experiments were getting more and more sophisticated. But deep within the shadows of his mind, the whispers of the demon still echoed, a constant reminder of the price he had paid for his insatiable hunger for power. And as he gazed out upon his twisted work, Lucan knew that his journey was still far from over. Thank you for listening to Stories from the First Watch. This episode finds the party at a low ebb. With one of their number slain, they now find themselves finally caught by Druk's goblins. And there is also the looming threat of an encounter with the mysterious Master Lucan. Will this be the end of their adventures? Find out next time on Stories from the First Watch.